Sick Boy Wolfgang Productions presents The Offering with Jerry Horror. A deep dive into the history of film and its filmmakers. Mostly horror, always genre. Where can I get my pickles when I can't get to a farmer's market or festival? The answer is Pickle Island in Bayville, New York. Listen, I've been selling a small pickle my whole life. I know all about it. From the vine to the brine, they keep their pickles cold with a delicious, diverse selection of gourmet pickles, including their savory classic bread and butter sweet chip, horseradish pickle, jalapeno pickle, and sweet Cajun pickle. They even got pickled beets and okra, a variety of sour treats for your next barbecue or get-together. But if you visit their store in Bayville, Long Island, New York, there's so much more, so much more. A fantastic selection of physical media, comics, music, movies, VHS, and Matt Roran, their enthusiastic pickle salesman. It's kind of a big deal. Check them out now at hormansbestpickles.com. Hey, quit jerking your gherkin and head over to Pickle Island in Bayville, New York. Welcome to The Offering with Jerry Hara, the show where we can have a quiet and frank discussion as adults about the things that matter to me, or at least that I think matter to me. Please take a moment to subscribe to our show wherever you get fine podcasts, and hey, stay up to date on future episodes. This week on The Offering, we're talking all about Scream 2, because everybody knows the real money is to be made in the sequel. I'm Jerry Hara. How are you doing? How is everything? Good to, I guess I can't see any of you. I guess you're all out there and you're listening, wondering and watching if Jerry is hiding behind the couch. But maybe you're not in the house. So how would I be hiding behind the couch? Maybe I'm outside your door. Maybe you're not in the house anymore and you're outside in the backyard and you're going to the shed and guess who's behind the shed? It's your old pal, Jerry Hara. Okay, I'm sorry. I really like doing that voice. Uh, I don't wish death upon Roger L. Jackson, but if he ever doesn't timely pass, I am available. Give me a call. Oh, man. It's no joke, man. The sequel was coming. It's inevitable. Uh, If anything is a success, there's always a sequel coming. Sometimes they're good, you know, um, and then sometimes they're bad. Sometimes I like them when they're bad. I like The Matrix Reloaded. (laughs) I like Superman 3. I will argue that Superman 3 isn't all that bad. You got some good stuff going on in that movie. Um, Richard Pryor woefully miscast in that film completely. But you do have evil Superman. He gets drunk. You have Lana Lane. I'm a little more partial to redheads, in case you're listening out there. Um, Yeah, so there's some good things about sequels. I think they're inevitable. Right now, we've been talking about all the hot gossip regarding the new Scream film. As we're recording this right now, which is August of 2021, we have a new Scream film coming out, and the gossip is just flying. No one knows what's real, what's not, what's misdirect, because a lot of times 
that's a big part of the job of people with a big franchise is how do we misdirect the people out there? Uh, let's throw some fake stories, you know? People won't see it coming. Speaking of not seeing it coming, uh, I have been stung three times this week by uh, hornets. There's either hornets or wasps. They won't. People say to me, they're like, well, did you see them? I'm like, no. I'm like, I, I run away when I see them. I'm terrified. Luckily, I have discovered, thank God, I am not allergic to them. Otherwise, I would not be recording this right now. I have this really nice mailbox that was put in by the landlord. It's, uh, it's like cast iron. Really nice, but apparently it's like the perfect place for hornets or wasps or whatever they are to live in. So I don't learn. They say that complete madness is the act of doing something over and over again without learning anything from it. I have learned. So I'm, I'm pretty well, I'm veering into madness, but now I am tunneling back from it because that's it. The third time... Uh, no, it's not going to happen anymore. So I am, I'm definitely going to be murdering these things. I don't care what happens. It's like, seriously, like I have a blood feud with the hornets and the wasps that are living inside my mailbox. I hope they hear this right now. I hope those fucking hornets. And you know what? I hope the families of those hornets. I murdered them. I killed them all, Sydney. I carved them up. Oh, that's right. This week we are talking all about Scream 2. Now, there are some people, it's very controversial. I'm going to state an opinion right now. <laughs> Collectively, you're going to hear all the people shutting the podcast off. I think that Scream 2 is the best out of all the sequels. That's my opinion. If compared to 3 and 4, not so much. Don't really like those ones. We'll get there. Don't worry. The reason we're doing this episode is because so many of you Love the episode that we did on Scream, the complete deep dive into the history and the making and the behind the scenes. So this should be no different because if something's successful, there's always going to be a sequel. And that's where all the money is, Sydney, in the sequel. No one could have foreseen the success of Scream. Ultimately, in 1996, the movie takes home $173 million. It's incredible. It's unprecedented. It's an absolute juggernaut of a hit that single-handedly revitalizes the entire horror genre worldwide. Now, of course, once... Now, I told you in the first episode, this was a slow burn. It didn't come, it wasn't like Scream opened and it was like, oh my God, it's the number one movie. We all got to go see it. No, it was a movie that built over time, that it was word of mouth. So I think it was by the fourth or fifth week of box office of the movie going, opening at number four, going to number five, and then shooting back up to number one, the Weinsteins pretty much said, we need a sequel. And it was all hands on deck and there was nothing between the ghost of Elvis, God, and the voice of Roger L. Jackson that was going to stop Wes Craven from making the sequel. Hello? Hello, Sydney. Remember me? What do you want? It's time, girlfriend. Don't you know history repeats itself? 
Last night, two college students were brutally murdered. Police are everywhere. The girl was stabbed seven times. Ouch. Hi, Gail Weathers, author of The Woodsboro Murders. She's an opportunist. Be kind, she saved our lives. Yeah, I know. I read all about it in the book. I can't wait to see the movie. The way I see it, someone's out to make a sequel. So it's our job to observe the rules of the sequel. Number one, the body count is always bigger. <laughs> Number two, the death scenes are always much more elaborate. <laughs> How do we find the killer, Randy? That's what I want to know. Well, let's look at the suspects. I'm not interrupting anything, am I? It's him. He can see us. Do you want to die tonight? Is that the best you can do? Why not set your goals higher, huh? You want to be one of the big boys? Manson? Bundy? OJ? favorite scary movie showgirls absolutely frightening now i had told you in the last episode part of the deal with kevin williamson selling the screenplay to miramax at that point in time was that the screenplay came with two five-page treatments outlining sequels So it was kind of known even very early on that Williamson had a plan for these films. There was no secret to it. I mean, he enclosed it with the original screenplay. So you you knew. You're like, oh, okay. It's very obvious that this is coming. Scream, the original, comes out uh, December 1996. It's like December 23rd. So it's pretty much less than a year later that the second one comes out. It is a point of contention among horror fans. Some people say that it's Friday the 13th Part 2, which was made like not within nine months. Same thing, same, almost same timing. Look, we can split hairs here, but I think personally Scream 2, maybe beating Friday the 13th Part 2 by like a week or two was the fastest sequel made to a successful horror film um, in the shortest amount of time. Uh, Basically, once this thing hit, they greenlit it. Um, Like with Friday the 13th, Paramount kind of had this idea where they were like, hey, look, maybe even if this film doesn't work, now that we own the rights to the name Friday the 13th, we can turn this into a franchise, but it doesn't have to connect. It can be kind of ambiguous, like the Twilight Zone. You know, it can just be something different every time. We own it. Who cares? So early on, Paramount knew that they were going to make some type of sequel. They didn't realize that it would be a direct connection. So that's it kind of counts, but it doesn't because they had had different plans to make it like this ongoing series, even if they weren't connected, so to speak. Um, This was a little bit different because, like I told you, (laughs) the treatment came with the original screenplay. So Kevin Williamson had already drawn the map. The blueprint was there, so to speak. The story of Scream 2 is very interesting, and... A lot of the reason that this film works is because 
it's it's pretty much except for everybody that got murdered. It's virtually the same cast and it's the same crew. You know, you've got Wes Craven, you've got the same director of photography, everybody. It's everybody is pretty much back in this movie. With that being said, there's a certain type of manic energy that every production, no matter what it is, carries. And I think sometimes when there's a very specific energy that is positive and the cast gets along, the crew gets along, it kind of becomes this magic little family. Everything aligned perfectly to make that first film work so well that it was almost like the energy was still there. It was kind of like having a really fun party. And then you were like, like a month later, you're like, hey, you guys want to come back and we'll all go to that house and we're all going to have fun again. And it was like, yeah. And it worked like for ostensibly for whatever reason, it worked. Believe it or not, one of the first problems that they had, there was a lot of talk about what they were going to call the film. But I'm going to get to that in a minute because we have to do one of my favorite parts of this show, which is what was the state of horror? Well, this was 1997. A lot of interesting things going on in horror. Some things not so much. Now, again, don't forget, Scream had come out in December of 1996. It was December 23rd. So it's late. That's a late year release. It pretty much could have been the beginning of 97 for all argument's sake. So here's some of the films of 1997. I know what you did last summer. Some people said, oh, is, was this a response to Scream? Not really, because by the time it had come out, which was like early spring of um, 1997, it, it couldn't have aped off the success. What, did they go make the movie in two months? No, it's not. But you had a lot of people, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Freddie Prince Jr., Ryan Phillippe, uh, Sarah Jessica Parker. I was going to say Sarah Jessica Parker. Jennifer Love Hewitt. Uh, I always, whenever you have that, like, the, that three name alliteration, it's kind of the same thing. Um, and I don't know. I would much rather, if I had a chance, if I had a choice of who to make out with, I'm going to say Jennifer Love Hewitt easily. Like, like there's not even like, um, who would I make out with for money? Sarah Jessica Parker, because you know, New York socialite got money. Um, there's some really weird movies this year. A lot of weird movies. There's no way to rebound from that awkward thing of me not making out with Sarah Jessica Parker for money. Um, produced by Wes Craven, Wishmaster, which is terrible, but I love it. Uh, Event Horizon, which is an effective film. It might be better than you actually remember it. Um, it's one of those movies that most people, they remember it being really good. And it's like really not. But hey, look, I'm not here to make any waves, but I kind of am. You're a dick. Fight me about it on Twitter. Event Horizon had a really good soundtrack, though. Had a really had like Prodigy on it. It was like it was kind of like that late '90s electronica. Eh, whatever. I liked it. Ooh, ooh. This was one of the worst movies that I saw in 1997. I saw this on a date. An American Werewolf in Paris. Ooh, ooh. Some brutal CGI there. The less said, the better. That's like a whole fucking episode. That movie. Yikes. The worst of. Alien Resurrection. Um, I like Alien Resurrection. It's the one with Winona Ryder as an android. Uh, it's Ron Perlman's in it. It's made by the, the City of Lost Children director, French director. It's the fourth movie in the cycle. I, I enjoy it. You get Sigourney Weaver back. It's okay. She's an all-star. I love her. Sigourney Weaver. Mm -mm. Anaconda. Ooh. Oh, man. Anaconda. It's got the greatest cast of all time. Um... 
some of the worst CGI because of because at that time it was just so hot. But I mean, what other movie can you see all those actors in? You got Ice Cube, Owen Wilson, Jennifer Lopez, and uh, Angelina Jolie's father giving one of the worst or best screen performances known to man. Let's just leave it at that. He's also become like a noted right-wing asshole, but that's a whole nother story. He's, he's like, you know, I don't even want to get into it. Okay, Cube. Cube was brilliant. Uh, Cube Works wasn't widely seen, didn't have a wide release, but it was a film that was a banger on video and also a banger on cable. Guillermo del Toro's stateside first film, Mimic, which I enjoyed Mimic. It's, it's not great, but it's, uh, it's passable. It's something. It's not good, but it's not bad. Uh, Relic. That was a film by... Peter Hyams, who had done Time Cop, it's not very good, and it has a terrible, terrible CGI monster, Um, which at that point you had a lot of studios, and they were like, oh, we'll just put a CGI monster in it because it's what all the kids like. They should have stuck with the practical effects. But again, it's a story for another time. Tangentially, Spawn, great soundtrack, terrible film. I saw that in theaters. Wow. Wow. And I love Michael Jai White. I love everybody who's involved with this film, Martin Sheen. But what a terrible, terrible film. The Devil's Advocate. It's cheesy. It's hammy. But I love it. It's Keanu Reeves. It's Al Pacino. It's an entertaining film, for <laughs> for better or worse. But other than a couple of like direct-to-video films like Arcade that nobody even cares about, we're still kind of in the horror doldrums at that point. Horror is still kind of, I mean, it's not as bad as 96. We went through on the last episode, all the movies that were out at that time. It was a hot mess. This isn't, it's a little bit better, but it's nowhere near the cataclysmic void of darkness that was 1996 for horror. Scream 2 is inevitable. The original made a lot of money. The biggest hurdle that they had to overcome initially was what the hell are we going to name this movie? Now you would think, you would think it would be simple enough for the executive just to say, well, we'll call it Scream 2 and, uh, you know, we'll go ahead with it. And that's, that's what it is. No, there was a lot of infighting initially that went on with what the title was going to be because different people who were throwing money into the production had different ideas of what this film should be and just how meta the sequel should go, because they were very self-aware of what this film was going to be. And now initially, like the first film was supposed to be called Scary Movie, and then it eventually was called Scream. So why should anything be different? Why why shouldn't we just completely fight again for the title of this sequel? Okay, so so let let me hit this off for you. The favorite was Scream Again, and I like that title. I think Scream Again works. I think it's cool. You know, like, hey, you screamed last year. You want to scream again? Come down to the theater. Um, Scream Louder. That was another favorite uh, that was in there. I don't know how I feel about that one. I don't know how I feel about Scream Louder. And Scream, the sequel, which is, is probably the worst of them all. It's just absolutely terrible. Then it finally gets down and... Wes Craven, in one of his dumbest decisions, was like, well, we should call it Scream 2, exclamation point, T-O-O. Thank God cooler heads prevailed, and uh, uh, they decided not to go with that because that was probably one of the most terrible ideas that I've ever heard. 
Now, it was pretty easy uh, to get everybody back because I think when you deal with one of these situations, like Friday the 13th Part 2 did not have this problem because they killed everybody. Essentially, there was only one final girl in Friday the 13th, and you didn't have the issue of having to get people back. So with this, it was a little easier, obviously, because you had most, most of the people had survived. Now, originally, don't forget, they had killed Dewey. But then Wes Craven shot two different endings, and he was like, eh, everybody likes Dewey. We need to give people a good feel-good moment. And he thought it would be a mistake. So with this movie, it wasn't as hard, but you still had to pad out the cast. And a lot of that was like, well, who are we going to bring into this new film? And also... They were in a situation where in order to make this movie as quickly as they could and get it into theaters, they had to throw more money at the production. So they got about $10 million, $12 million more to make this film overall because it had to be done quicker, um, had to be generated in such a short amount of time to get it into theaters. So the role of Mickey, who ultimately is played by Timothy Oliphant, was offered to Tobey Maguire and they were desperate to get him to play this part. And for whatever reason, he, he didn't take it. It didn't happen. And, uh, yeah, that, that's basically like a lot of times we go into the history of it and we talk about like, Oh, there was all these crazy casting choices, but that's the only one. <laughs> the first movie, there were all these people like Reese Witherspoon and, you know, they were thrown around for different names, like for Sydney. This movie didn't have that issue because they had their primary cast. Now it was pretty much filling out the people and, so to speak, and the victims. And you've got some interesting choices in this film. Like in the sequel, now you've got Sarah Michelle Gellar. And it's crazy because big year for Sarah Michelle Gellar. She's got Buffy on TV and she ends up being in the top two movies of the year, which is Scream 2 and I, I still know what you did. Let, not, <laughs> I'm already getting the sequel of that one. I know what you did last summer. So Sarah Michelle Gellar, holy shit, 1997, she kind of peaked, right? One of the top shows on television. She's got two of the top movies. I mean, Sarah Michelle Gellar, ostensibly probably one of the hottest actresses of 1997. So I guess we'll give that to her. Hottest actress of 1997, Sarah Michelle Gellar. Um, at around one minute, uh, Paulette Peterson, who plays the usher, who hands the masks to Maureen and Phil, played by... Jada Pinkett Smith and Omar Epps, she won her role in a contest sponsored by MTV because there had to be an MTV contest because back in the day, that's what you did. So they actually kind of paid off on this. So that girl who you see, who's the usher, she won a contest to have that part. Um, it's crazy because the inside of that theater, it's the same theater that you see in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Fun fact. It's kind of crazy because I think that the opening of Scream 2 is ingenious, okay? Um, I know that you probably want to say more. It's like, okay, these two black people are about to be fucking brutally murdered, right? And, like, you could do something different with this, but at least it tried to acknowledge that trope. And that's more than most films were trying to do at that point in time. To me, I think that the opening of Scream 2 is probably one of the most powerful parts of 
the entire film. Uh, Marco Beltrami's score is incredibly mesmerizing and haunting in that sequence. And this is really where we get into the hot and heavy, the beginning of the meta experience within Hollywood, where it's like they're watching Stab. And if you didn't know, all the stuff that you see in the film Stab was shot by Robert Rodriguez. And it was crazy because a lot of people were told initially when Robert Rodriguez was shooting that new footage for Stab, the actors that were in there were told, oh, you're going to be in the new Scream movie because they couldn't reveal that it was meta. So when they cast Heather Graham, she was told she was going to be in Scream too. She had no idea. She just thought, oh, I'm going to do a cameo like Drew Barrymore. This is my big break. This is going to be a big part for me. So she was kind of upset and disappointed when she found out that, no, you're you're not actually in. Well, you are in Scream 2 technically, but you're in the movie within the movie. And it's funny because this whole stab movie lays the groundwork for what's going to come in the other sequels. Uh, those stab movies become a big deal. Once you get to the third and the fourth movie, they kind of overtake things. Kevin Williamson had the idea for a sequel when he was writing the script for Scream. Obviously, he was discovering it as he went along uh, after he wrote The Treatment. Now, this movie had begun principal photography just six months after the release of Scream, and it was released in less than nine months of the predecessor, which is the original film. Um, again, that's what I talk about like with the, the Friday the 13th parallel. So it's like, dude, historians, you can fight over it. You can say whatever. But ultimately, both movies were made within nine months, which is how long it takes to make a baby. Some people... <laughs> Some people didn't like the opening that you introduce these two black characters and then kill them off immediately. I think that Wes Craven was trying to say something. He really was. And that's why the opening of this film is so brilliant and so shocking. It's it's the art imitates life type of thing where you've got Jada Pinkett Smith and she's been brutally stabbed and she's dying. She's letting out her death rattle in a theater full of people who are cheering for her because they think they're all in masks and whatnot. And it's funny because, you know, we went through this whole thing where they don't want people dressing up like cosplayers going to movie theaters because it's crazy. And you watch this movie and there's everybody's in ghost face masks and it's an incredibly powerful visual. So from a standpoint I got to say the opening of this movie, it's an absolute stunner, but there is something really disturbing about watching a woman die while a bunch of people are cheering her on and they're watching a movie about people getting stabbed to death called stab. So yeah, I get it. It's cheeky. It is what it is. Okay. We need to get into production because the production of this movie is insane. Okay. One of the extras, this is, this is how this all starts. One of the extras leaked the script to the internet. Now, this is the first major film that ever suffered from a script going directly to the web. Um, as a result, the entire script had to be rewritten, with pages often being completed the day that they were filmed. Security was tightened. Everyone was required, not just... This is every day they had to sign an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement, 
And basically the film underwent probably about 30 or 40 reshoots. I know this all sounds insane, but it's all true. The script was reprinted on specialty paper that can, couldn't be photocopied. And then they also put some kind of weird ink so that like, if you tried to do anything to it, your name was all over your pages. So if you took the page and you're like, ha ha, I'm going to be smart. Like it would come up, you know, oh, Jerry Haro on every page. And they'd be like, oh shit, they know I'm the guy who leaked it. Yeah. So this is where it gets a little bit confusing and you guys are going to have to follow along here as difficult as it is. A film had never been leaked on the internet before. This is new. This is a new thing. This is a problem that no one has ever had to deal with. So one of the things that they did was they got a bunch of security guards, armed security guards to lock down the set. And every time they were shooting, it became like, you know, you would think the president was there. They had to keep it very contained. So no one could easily freely go where they wanted to. Even when you had people like, you know, David Arquette, he, uh, at the time, you know, he, he liked to get high. So he would, you know, try to roll a joint and go sneak off behind, you know, whatever catering and smoke. And it was to the point where it was like the set was so locked down and it was just like saying he remembers at Wes Craven, like yelling at him. It was just like, okay, well then just smoke it here, David. It's not a big deal. Okay. We're making a movie. You got to stay right there. We'll be right back with more of The Offering with Jerry Horror. You're listening to The Offering with Jerry Horror. Got a question or a story you want to share with me? It might be featured in a future episode. Email me at jerryhara at gmail.com or hit me up on Twitter at jerryhara. I'm also on Instagram. You can find me there at jerryhara. Rate and review this show on Apple Podcast, and you might find your review in an upcoming episode. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to The Offering. Now back to the show. Even though everybody got along very well and there's really no onset trauma, it got really, it got really rough to shoot this movie because it had to be locked down. It, it was under so much scrutiny. At the end of the day, you couldn't leave unless they collected your, your screenplay, your, your basically your pages, and then the pages were destroyed every night. Additionally, in this original screenplay that leaked to the internet, the first one that leaked, Mickey was actually going to be a good guy. He turned out to be a good guy and was killed by Ghostface. Now, that's supposedly the original ending, okay? We're going to get into this. The cast were not informed of the identity of the killer until the last day of principal photography. Also, the cast did not receive the last 10 pages of the shooting script until it was time to film the scenes an hour before, which therein would have the contained information of what was going to happen an hour prior to them actually filming it. Furthermore, the last 10 pages of the shooting script were printed on gray paper in order to deter illicit duplication of any of this. All cast members were to sign confidentiality agreements again before they filmed the final sequence. I can't even tell you what this... So once they're getting to the end, they shoot four different versions of this finale. Now, most of this stuff has never been seen. Some of it ended up on the first DVD release. You got to see a little bit of it on the extras. 
But basically, to make a long story short, because this could go on for quite some time, they shot every conceivable version of this ending you could. If you guys remember the movie Clue, Clue had all these different endings. And if you went to the theater, you saw it in the theater, they would change out that final reel and it would have a different ending. Anything that you can think of, they, they pretty much did. In the original ending before the script was rewritten, Gail got killed by Cotton and Sydney and Cotton had to fight for the death and possibly Dewey died from his injuries in the projection room. <laughs> I mean, like, this is an insane ending. This is the, this original ending was crazy because what they're doing is they're using Mickey as the red herring. Mickey ends up being a good guy. In the real version that we saw, he's one of the killers. Now, and I told you this, this is where it gets confusing. It's a little weird to wrap your head around. I'm going to try to describe it as best as possible. So in this ending, Cotton Weary is the bad guy. And he basically kills Gail Weathers. It was going to be kind of like, did they really kill Dewey? Wes Craven felt so bad about what had happened in the first film. He said he would kind of just leave it out there. But that's kind of a grim ending. So the only true survivor of the real original ending was Sydney. Now, this ending gets out. People freak out. Dimension, Miramax Studios, starts getting calls, letters from people, freaking out, emails, because emails were new then, saying, how could you kill Gail Weathers? You know, how fucking dare you? The audacity to kill off this character it turned into pretty much a nightmare and they were completely overwhelmed, overrun for about two weeks after that screenplay leaked. And this is all new. Like I said, this was the first screenplay that had ever leaked to the internet. It had never happened before. So they're dealing with this for the first time. Now, again, everybody got along on this movie. There were no problems on set, but it, everybody was under such high scrutiny and high security that it became an uncomfortable thing. And even Wes Craven had been quoted as saying that he had a great time shooting this movie, but was really happy when it was over with because of everything that had to be done. Now, I don't think we're ever going to see it because like now, like you see things like you have like, uh, you know, Zack Snyder's Justice League gets made and they have all, all the, the footage but I don't know. Like, it's it's even the same thing that has been talked about with Wes's later movie, Cursed, which got chopped by Miramax. That's a whole nother story. But I don't think that footage is... I don't know how much of it they kept. The other thing, too, was that they were... so Everybody had become so paranoid. And it's funny because you have that first movie and everybody... The whole point of the first movie is everybody's a suspect, Right. That's kind of what happens. You know, it's like they say, like, art imitates life and life vice versa. This is, becomes a situation where everybody is completely paranoid because who leaked the script? You know, was it one of the extras? Was it one of the, was it one of the primary people in the cast? Some people, it's become an urban legend now, that Courtney Cox, a.k.a. Gail Weathers herself, had leaked the screenplay because she was pissed off that they were going to kill her. I don't know what the truth is. I wasn't there. We can only speculate on it, but that's kind of the big rub with that is that Courtney Cox was pissed off and didn't want to be killed off. And you know what? I don't know. 
<laughs> I mean, shit, 1997 was a crazy time. Now that we talked about the first movie, Wes Craven's biggest adversary with the first movie was the Motion Picture Association of America. It was going to be the same deal. They were able to get together kind of a, a final version of this film. And again, everything had to be done in secret. What they basically did was they had one editor and usually they have someone that would be assisting the editor because this is all reels. They're cutting it on film and they would have somebody who come in. They would bring in different assistants and only allow them to see certain portions of the film because again, so now the editing of this film becomes a lockdown process because they're afraid that it's going to leak. Now, I told you, the first movie, it took them, it was about 11 times that it took them, it was like the 12th or 13th time that they finally were able to coerce the Motion Picture Association, you know, it was the Weinsteins who basically told them, view it as a parody, view it as satire, and that was how they got the first film by. This time, it took eight different cuts of the film before they would release it in its R-rated form. The film was supposed to come out a month or two earlier. The sequel was supposed to come out a month or two earlier. But again, they ran into the same problem with the first one. For whatever reason, the MPAA did not like this movie. They were forced to make a lot of changes. And this affects the whole series moving forward because... Wes Craven was really upset because he went through this really terrible process the first time. And it's like, here we go again. We're just, we're going, because again, it's a sequel. Everybody loves a sequel, right? But this is not what you want. This is not the headache you want on your production. And they keep sending it back. Ultimately, what it came down to was the kill scene with Omar Epps, where he gets stabbed in the head in the beginning. There was a really cool shot that, you know, we've never seen it, but from what it's been described is that the knife protruded right through the back of his eye. And it was really gruesome and bloody, and you kind of see the eyeball pop out. So they had to put a really neutered version of it into the film, and they ended up uh, having to reshoot that because obviously they couldn't have... The gag was for the knife to go through the side of the head and have the eyeball kind of pop out through the socket. It was just too gruesome. So guess what? Sorry, Wes Craven. You got to go back and reshoot it. They reshot it. And now what you see in the film, it's still rough. It's still a painful thing to watch, but I don't know. And I sometimes wonder had they left that in there, you know, and it was done by, uh, you know, KNBFX, great effects people. I wonder if that might have been too much. If an eyeball popping out of the skull would have been like, oh, because, you know, you see people get stabbed and, and there's some fantastical things like, you know, obviously Rose McGowan's death in the uh, garage door. But I don't know. Was, was it a deal breaker? Uh, maybe. Might have been a little too fantastical. This, the, okay, this was another thing that pissed off Wes Craven. So they go and they screen it for everybody. They have a screening for the executives for Wes Craven, the approved cut from the MPAA. They're sitting in the theater, and all of a sudden, at the end of the movie, after the the final beat, uh, it originally ends with Ghostface in the bell tower watching over everybody, and then it's Roger L. Jackson. He's like, (laughs) and the bell rings and the movie ends. Craven flipped the fuck out 
because, and I've, I've told you about the Weinsteins before, they've done this, they've tampered with so many movies, even like we talked about Mimic came out that same year, they tampered with Mimic. If you're going to watch that film and you get it on Blu-ray, watch the director's cut, because the other cut is just trash. But they were notorious, they were absolutely notorious. And this was something that made Craven almost not re-up his deal with them to to work with them because he was like, you shot, basically the Weinsteins shot this scene of Ghostface in a bell tower, which it's like the corniest thing. And they didn't tell him about it and then tagged it on and said, oh, we didn't think you'd care. But it's like, come on, man. You know, it's just kind of upsetting. So basically, even though he didn't have final cut, Craven was like, look, everything's Gucci. It's 100. I love it. Cut that fucking scene out. Because I can't, like, I can't, we can't do it. We just can't. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you thinking? You know, it doesn't need that scene. Because Ghostface is always, even though it's a disguise, it's a human. And we've, we vanquished the human killer. It's not like some mysterious supernatural killer. Or is it? Because there was a couple of different screenplays that went around initially. One of them that leaked saying that they wanted to do this whole big dream sequence in the beginning with Stu, you know, Matthew Lillard. And ultimately they decided against it because Wes Craven said that it was too fantastical and too much of a misdirect. But initially that was almost one of the openings of the movie. There was this opening that involved, you had um, Skeet Ulrich and Matthew Lillard, and it was kind of like, a dream sequence. And basically you would have had that, that cold opening with Omar Epps and Jada Pinkett Smith. And then it would have gone to that sequence. And Wes Craven just said, nah, it's, it's too much fantasy. It's too out there. And ultimately they never did it. Unfortunately though, a couple of versions of that screenplay leaked and it's hard to tell. It's hard to verify what was real and what wasn't because some people have said that there were phantom edits that were made to these screenplays. You know, it's kind of one of those things. It's like the game telephone where like you, you tell somebody tells the story. So what happened was people were getting the screenplay that leaked and making their own additions and subtractions to it. And in that time, like I said, it was the first screen. That's why it's so special. The first one is always so special, but no one had ever, you know, it's not like the sc <laughs> the screenplay for like, uh, Batman Returns leaked or, you know, Superman 3. This had never happened before. So people making their... I think this is what leads to kind of the urban legend of this film is that people might have gotten a hold of this leaked screenplay and added things, subtracted things. So we'll never know because Wes Craven isn't with us anymore. Or is he? Uh, Wes Craven isn't with us anymore and he... We, we'll, we'll pretty much never know. Now... According to a rumor, another big rumor, I'm, 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 I'm giving you all the hot gossip and the rumors. This is stuff that most people don't ever talk about. The identity of Ghostface was changed. Originally, it was going to be Derek, who was Jerry O'Connell, okay? And uh, Haley, who was played by Elise Neal in the original ending. Now, I told you. It was supposed to, the, the whole thing was supposed to be Cotton Weary. They supposedly shot that. Um, now, this ending with Derek and Haley, 
uh, was referenced in Scream 3, where all of the actors and actresses on Stab 3 were kept in the dark about the script for this reason. So a lot of the things that you see happening in that third movie are actually kind of in-jokes and parody of things that really did happen. You know, so again, it's like art imitating life. Now, originally scheduled to open alongside Tomorrow Never Dies and Titanic. This was 1997, James Bond and James Cameron, uh, respectively. Both blockbusters shifted their dates because they didn't want to open against Scream 2. And that speaks to the power of this movie. I mean, Titanic has gone on to become one of the highest grossing films of all time, won Academy Awards, 007's a juggernaut franchise, and they're all afraid of the second movie from about Scream from uh, Wes Craven. Now, ultimately, it all works out. I get the Cotton Weary ending. I don't think it would have worked, quite personally. I just don't think it would have worked. I really do, because it, it's too easy. It's too easy. Uh, I like the turn that they do with Cotton in this second film. I like the fact that it's kind of like, he's kind of a nice guy. He's not too bright, but he's not a bad guy. You know, he's just, he's also trying to capitalize like, hey, he got screwed over. The guy was rotten in jail and now he's been proven innocent and he's uh, you know, trying to make a couple of bucks. I don't blame him, but I think it would have been too easy if he had been the bad guy. This movie, holy smokes, did it have an opening. I, this was another movie that I saw opening night. It was absolutely electric because when I first saw this film, I was among the first wave of people that initially saw it. I was part of that word of mouth that was like, oh my God, you gotta see Scream. So it was still kind of like not a packed theater, you know, it was like it was kind of, it took time. It was a slow burn to get there. But because of the success of Scream and the success of it, um, it's still one of the best-selling. It was distributed by Miramax, which you know obviously it was an arm of Disney. Still one of the best-selling VHS tapes of all time is the original Scream. By the time Scream 2 came out, people were ready. All those asshole people, those jocks and the people that you don't like, they were there for Scream 2. They might have seen it on home video, the first one, or they might have seen it later into its life cycle in the theatrical release, but it was very much one of those things where it's like, it was a cultural touchstone. It was a moment where even if you weren't a horror nerd, you were there because it was an event movie. And I saw it in theaters. I got to see it again. It was, you know, one of those things. It was a Thursday night and it was electric. I'll be honest with you. It was pure magic because it was one of these movies where it has a very specific youth audience and we were all there and we were all there for it. So I think people's heads were going to explode. And I think that ultimately the reason Scream is so great, the original movie, is because it's a great whodunit. You didn't see what was coming. And it's, it's never easy to pull that off again. It's like we talk about the new, you know, like um, Ryan Johnson's got the two new Knives Out movies coming. You got to pull that magic trick off. Not, not again, not just once, but twice. So it's like, you know, if you're going to do a good whodunit story, you have to have people invested into the characters, invested into the story, and then pull the magic trick. It's not easy. It's not easy to pull off. This movie, Scream 2, had one of the craziest opening weekends. 
it did $103 million opening weekend, which is like, for 1997 money, that's insane, number one. Adjusted for inflation and gross, that would be $273 million today. Really wrap your head around that many people that quickly seeing this film. Scream and Scream 2 were the highest grossing movies of 1997, uh, the original Scream was released very late in 96, so making most of its money the next year. Ultimately, Scream 2 brings in $172.4 million, just shy of the $173 million made by the first film. But you have to understand it was a double shot. They made all that money in 1997. It was a gigantic year for everybody involved, Miramax Dimension, it's just, it's an absolute juggernaut how big this film was. It was also, Scream 2 had, was one of the soundtracks in the modern era that was, it had a pretty decent soundtrack. I don't, ha, you know, like, I was listening to different stuff. I was more into, you know, electronica, indie rock and shit like that, hip hop. So it's not really my forte, this soundtrack, so to speak, but... It was one of the fastest movie soundtracks to ever go gold. I think it went gold in like less than three days, which is like, it's insane to even think that. this film and I think it's probably one of the better sequels and it works its pacing is very tight it's got a lot of good new characters that are interesting as the aforementioned Cotton Weary comes in but this movie made one big mistake that pissed fans off and that we might or might not see uh, rectified in this new Scream film this film kills off Randy Meeks now, as I've spoken about it before at length, I think it's the biggest mistake that you could make because Randy was essentially, if you're a horror nerd, he was your, he was your audience surrogate. Like, oh, that's me. You know, that's me on screen. Like, I'm a big horror nerd. I'm a big horror nerd making a podcast. Um, let's see, we just went meta there. Um, I'm a big horror nerd. That's Randy. Now, they had done it a couple of different ways. At first, they were going to have Randy come back at the end of the movie. But because of all the reshoots and everything that had happened, Wes Craven felt like it would have cheapened the movie. And him and Williamson kind of came to the conclusion, and I understand this from a writer's standpoint, they needed to make a decision to kill one of those OG characters from the first movie that was going to totally pull the rug out from the audience. You know, it's like Randy said, all bets are off because you're in a sequel. And in, in the sequel, all the rules change. So I think that the only way they could pull off, it's, it, we always talk about like a sequel is about escalation. Like a good sequel always ups the ante. 
Um, you know, like Karate Kid 2 is one of my favorite examples. So the first one, he fights in a tournament. The second one, they go to Okinawa, and shit gets real. He's not fighting in a tournament. He's fighting for his life. It's real. It's no, no, you know, there's no, there's no referee that's going to break it up. And I think that that's important in a sequel. Unfortunately, the major form of escalation was by killing this beloved character. And personally, and this is going to be a very hot opinion, I think it broke the ability to make sequels and it broke the franchise button. Because without Randy as the audience surrogate, it's a little bit tough. Look, I like Gail Weathers, but you know what? I would have rather them killed Gail Weathers because she's a reporter. Where can you, like, she has an arc and she gets redeemed. She ends up being a good person. Where do you go with the Gail Weathers character? Because that becomes even a problem with the third film is the whole Scream 3 becomes the Gail Weathers movie. And that's fine, but eh. And then Dewey is kind of like, Dewey's like your mascot. He's like your Mickey Mouse. You know, you don't want to kill off the guy that's kind of beloved by everybody. And I think that Wes Craven really, for whatever reason, he hated that decision of killing off uh, that character of Dewey. But they felt that the only way that they could really shock and surprise audiences was by murdering Randy Meeks. And uh, it's, it's an incredibly violent death, you know. He gets his throat cut. And the way that they originally shot it, and this was another thing that got chopped by the MPAA, was he gets his throat cut. But they did like a full arterial spray where... It was almost like a quick turn where Randy's back is turned to the audience. We see the back of Ghostface and he turns to the camera and the blood just gushes out. And we have that zip zoom in. And the MPAA was like, fuck you. No way. Because it was very much it was just so gruesome. You know, it's, it's that magic trick of seeing someone's throat. Really, they didn't like it. It upset them. They used kind of a mocked edited version of it, whatever. But I think artistically what Wes Craven was trying to say with that scene was, oh, you think you know what's going to happen? You think you know how this is all going to work out? Here's your sacrificial lamb. So I guess in service to the story and in service to the sequel, we kill off Randy. But ultimately, it breaks the franchise. It's the moment that breaks the entire franchise and doesn't allow it to continue on because spoiler alert for scream three. Once you get to that third movie, we get into Heather Matarazzo is, is the sister, you know, the girl from welcome to the Dollhouse. She's the sister. She's Martha Meeks. And we get Martha Meeks and she comes and she's like, she's like, Randy wanted me to give this to you. It's a VHS and it's a fucking VHS tape of Randy. And it was like, even in 2000, when I was watching it in theaters, I was like, oh, hey, it's Randy. I'm like, I love Randy. I'm like, why do they have to kill Randy? I'm like, Because once you have Randy in that VHS tape in the third movie, you've already admitted that you fucked up. It happens, folks. I'm sorry. The legacy of Scream is that it's a very good sequel to a very good film. And that's hard to come by. Now, I have my problems with those other films. I do. Three and four, we'll get into that, and that's next time. But Scream 2 is a good movie, and it's a dead solid sequel. And considering that it was made so fast, 
I wonder, I really wonder there's this other world where those other endings exist because they had to keep changing them because they were so afraid that, the, you know, people were going to find out what the real ending was. And to this day, Williamson, Craven, even the actors, because the actors really didn't know, we'll never know what the real ending was. Was the real ending Cotton Weary being the killer? You know, was the real ending going to be Jerry O'Connell as the killer? We'll never know because admittedly Williamson has come out and said, he's like, we basically did a bunch of those endings. Like, obviously they wrote a bunch of different endings, but they shot the different endings to confuse the people that were working on the film. Um, and if anything had leaked, you know, in the post-production process, it's intangible. We'll never know what the real ending of Scream 2 was, but we do know to this day that the film was significantly changed in order to prevent people from learning about spoilers. And that is the takeaway. So that leads us to Scream 3. But what did you think? Is Scream 2 good? Did you like it? Am I crazy? Am I a crazy person? Uh, did you work on Scream 2 and you have information? Do you want to give me the hot goss? Do you want to give me the hot goss on the sly? You want to meet me out back? Tell me what really happened? Does anyone know? Is there anyone out there who can substantiate the evidence of what this film actually was before it had been cut down and changed because of the spoilers? Please, get at me on social media. I got a YouTube channel. It's the offering with Jerry Hara. I'm at Jerry Hara. Come at me. Tell me what you think. I want to know what you think. I hope that you have enjoyed this episode. I hope that you've learned a little bit more about what makes this Scream series so magical. And if you enjoy it, we'll keep exploring it. And if not, like I said, we could always do the Nightmare on Elm Street films. There's plenty of stuff there to mine. My name is Jerry Hara. This has been The Offering, which is mostly horror, but always genre. You've been listening to The Offering with Jerry Hara. I'm very sorry. Produced by Pete Pune. If you have a question or a story you want to share with me, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at jerryhara at gmail.com or hit us up at Twitter at jerryhara or on Instagram at jerryhara. You get in the picture? Subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are provided for you and your family. I want you to enjoy. Just join us next time for another offer. I'm Tom. My partner Mike and I have been friends and co-workers for a long time. And at work, we're known for our daily water cooler conversations about TV shows and movies we are currently watching. Whether we're arguing over which Marvel TV show is the best or agreeing about which Netflix original movie is the worst, the pop culture conversation is always popping on Two Brothers at a Water Cooler. You can listen to Two Brothers at a Water Cooler on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are available. Subscribe and share today. This has been a Sick Boy Wolfgang production. Thank you for listening. <laughs>